0: The Anesthesia Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this brand new Anesthesia Journal podcast. Uh, my name is Mike Charlesworth. I'm one of the editors of the journal. And this month, we're going to be talking about the November issue. So it's currently October, but our issues we publish always a month in advance. So at the beginning of October, we'll publish the November issue, and that is online today and ready to read. There are lots of topics in the issue, and they include things like tranexamic acid, Gastric point of care, ultrasound, airway management, and much, much more. But we're going to do something a little bit different this month. We I'm delighted that we've got all the way from California, Professor Ed Mariano, and he's here to talk to me about three of the papers from the issue. So great to see you, Ed, and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Mike. It's really great to be the first official guest on the new format of uh,
1: this uh, this this new blog format of the podcast. It's amazing. I think. Um, uh, I'm just coming off uh, this last month yeah, having had the great pleasure of seeing you all in person. I think we have such a fantastic group of editors in Anesthesia yeah, who not only are hardworking and very dedicated yeah, to the craft and science of, of journal publishing, but also just really, really good people. And yeah, and really share a lot of similar interests um, and, uh, and passions about um, improving patient care as well as other things in our personal lives. So it was really, really great to see everybody.
0: Yeah it was great to see you as well. I'd, um last month we had um, a really brilliant time all together. It's um, it's always a bit strange when you when you see people like that in real life as well. I think you walked past me in the in the hotel lobby at one point when uh, I was like, "Oh wow, it's Ed." because we've we've been so used over the last few years to being very virtual. So where are you at the moment? What have you been doing since Edinburgh and what are your plans for the next few weeks? it's so true.
1: We um I remember because I joined I joined the, the board of anesthesia just before Covid. So I had not actually had a chance to meet everyone in person until annual congress last year so I remember my first thoughts with you in particular is that you are much taller than you look on Zoom so um, <laughs> but last uh, this last month was was fantastic um, I had a chance to, to join annual Congress again, um, and this is just a, a great meeting with, uh, hosted by the Association of Anesthetists. I recommend it to anyone you know, who's really looking for um, a right-sized meeting that has an incredible amount of networking um, with not just with the expert speakers, but with editors of the journal. So if you're um, in training, you're an early career investigator, or maybe you're a senior investigator and you're doing some really interesting work, and um, there's really not no, no format or no forum that's quite as accessible um, as the annual Congress for really getting a chance to meet with the editors of the journal. Uh, right before that, I was in Paris because Ezra hosted the World Congress the Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. And I had a chance to see all of my friends around the world um, who have similar passions for regional anesthesia and pain management. And then I went home after annual Congress from Edinburgh for a few days, and then I had I actually had another uh, small meeting in New Orleans. Uh, I represent our American Society of Anesthesiologists in um, procedural terminology. And some, uh, we may be familiar with CPT coding. Um, every specialty society has one representative that goes to the American Medical Association's CPT panel, and so I'm I'm the representative for our uh, great society of ASA with 56,000 members. And then I, after that, I actually left for Spain, so I, I completed last week in Spain. Um, I was uh, incredibly honored to receive uh, the Distinguished Service Award from uh, Ezra Espanya. So, That's amazing. Um, it was incredible. Um, it was one of those really um, very surreal moments when you know, sometimes we we have our head down and we're doing all this work to try to make patient care better, and it's hard to know whether or not uh, what you do makes a difference. So this is one of those um, incredible moments when um on stage receiving a an award from the specialty society in spain uh for the work that i was doing and and my oldest son was with me so he got a chance to sit in the audience uh, and share it with me <laughs> wow
0: that's that's absolutely incredible um congratulations for that and Thank um, you. it is really great to have you um as part of our team on the journal as well and one that, one of the great reasons why I, I I think we have such a good team is the, the expertise of of individual editors and, and you included. And hopefully we're going to be able to, to utilize some of that as we talk through some of the papers. And the first we've picked today is, is actually an editorial. And the reason why we've picked it is because it's quite, it, well, it's, it's very much a hot potato at the moment. Uh, we remember some of the talks from annual congress and some of the papers that we've got coming on the way, and we've got our environmental supplement coming in early 2024. But this month, we have an editorial from the previous editor-in-chief of the journal, Professor Andrew Klein, and his colleagues uh, from Cambridge. And he's asked some pretty deep questions about the future of nitrous oxide. And he's asked whether or not that future is as volatile as a gas itself. Ed, when was the last time you used it? I, I can't imagine you're a, a massive nitrous oxide user, but when was the last time you used it? Well, I, I wish I
1: could say that I I do not use it anymore, but I, I would be lying. Um, I While I'm, I'm very heavily involved in regional anesthesia, and and when when possible, I try to avoid general anesthesia entirely, um, I also take my fair share of, of emergency call and um, and I had a, a case just um, you know, a little over a month ago uh, with um, an unfortunate, very sick, frail patient you know, who you know, had a very little cardiac reserve and almost no vasomotor control, um, and, and would not tolerate um, you know, the you know, our typical volatile anesthetic uh, or even um, you know, a lower dose propofol infusion. Without already an incredible amount of support, um, and these are the cases in which I, I feel. That nitrous oxide, especially for uh, non-lengthy cases, may be appropriate. Um, but I do think that um, the editorial just raises some really important questions, and it and it's not a it's not it's not a thou shall not in terms of message. Which which I think I appreciate. Um, and medicine itself is so nuanced. Um, but I think that the the overall message that I got from uh, from this editorial, which is brilliantly written, um, was that you really should think twice and think very carefully about whether you, what are the indications for use as opposed to defaulting to using it. I think that like most drugs that we use in our clinical practice that have important side effects, that you have to assume that
0: yeah, that this is something that we should use only when it's appropriately indicated. Yeah, one of one of the aspects I found interesting was about the mechanism of action and how that's dependent on vitamin B12. And I didn't realize that most cases where patients have got vitamin B12 deficiency were actually, the, they, they presented in, in, in a very neuropsychiatric way. So for example, we're always taught that patients have anemia and that's how you find out that they've got vitamin B12 deficiency. So that was quite interesting. Um, and also when a patient's tested in hospital for B12 deficiency that serum assay is actually not all that useful and it may be normal but also that there are other aspects of nitrous oxide that are discussed in the editorial one which is very topical in the UK certainly is that a recreational abuse I mean I remember being quite naive and and seeing uh, gas canisters by the side of the road um, and I was speaking to someone about it and I, I assumed that it was from cyclists and they were using using them to as a way to pump the tires up or something like that you know if a, a CO2 canister or something and that someone had to explain to me now that's actually comes about from recreational nitrous oxide abuse and it makes you realize how common it is um is that much of a problem in, in the u.s ed yeah i think that the
1: the statistics i think are very similar i think for the u.s and, and uk and unfortunately that um yeah access is is always an important factor to any recreational uh, drug use and abuse and unfortunately um, nitrous oxide is still available in a variety of settings and I remember being a, an anesthetic trainee, and you know, one of my um, former consultants, who actually used to have my my job currently as a, as chief at the Veterans Affairs Palo Health System, um, you know, retired professor Jeff Baden had actually studied the exposure of um, a dental assistants and dentists um, you know, to nitrous oxide. And yeah, you know, one of the um, yeah you know, one of the the articles that that covered you know, his um, manuscript, he really talked about um diversion of nitrous oxide in these areas because you know, not only was there um environmental exposure because scavenging was almost non-existent you know, just in in occupational use but because of access that you know, the you know, the diversion of nitrous or after hours use of nitrous was really high i had no idea yeah you know, that this was actually a thing and so um it was really eye-opening um it's unfortunate i think that you know, we yeah you know, we've seen over time i mean just the evolution of drugs of abuse um yeah obviously the yeah you know, i think access is a huge part and i think that that's one of the issues that we have to consider because um yeah as the uh, as physicians as uh, healthcare professionals you know, we we really have to be responsible for limiting access and also making sure that we use it only when it's indicated
0: yeah one of the ways in which um, clinicians are, are getting to grips with this problem here is getting the message out there that, that nitrous oxide as a recreational drug is actually very dangerous. Clinicians in the UK are very involved with that at the moment, and um, which, is, uh, which is fascinating and something we might see more of in the future.
1: Yeah. And one of the points that you raised, and I think was also raised by the author of the editorial, was just that uh, some of these patients may present with peripheral neuropathy. And I just thought that was a really... I mean, in hindsight, after having read that, I thought, oh, that really, that makes sense. I mean, especially after they, in the description of they talk about the potential mechanisms, but I don't know that we would, you know, or our colleagues in um, primary preventative care would really recognize that you know, a patient who you know, has peripheral neuropathy and may be, maybe have a substance use disorder yeah, and you know, could be you know, using nitrous. It, it's it's really an interesting perspective and, and one that we probably need to um, yeah, provide much more education to our clinicians, so that way it's a question that gets asked. I mean, what if our colleagues in pain medicine are receiving these patients uh, with a peripheral neuropathy, and uh, it's it's not it's not out of the it wouldn't be out of the question, right? Because it's such a common uh, potential um, referring
0: diagnosis for pain medicine. There's so many facets to this, isn't there? Because as as well as the way that nitrous oxide works, its use as a for analgesia and anesthesia. It's use in the community as a drug of, of recreation and the dangers around that. Um, there's also the environmental implications of nitrous oxide and its use in as, as a medicine and the consequences of that on on global heating. And, and that's going to be something that we're going to be talking about in our environmental supplement in early 2024. But it's, it's not as as, as easy as saying well you know should we stop using it certainly in some places we've got rid of the pipe systems and they're responsible for quite a lot of leakage of, of nitrous oxide and hospitals there's complex ethics as well no you're right
1: and i think and i think because it is such a well-established um medication the class of the medication within the healthcare setting um, i think we do have to be very conscious of what the unintended consequences are of of, of providing a hardline stance. And I think, and I think that the authors of the editorial, I think, did a really great job um, you know, providing the arguments that would really dissuade routine use. But they also did not say absolutely never use it. Um, and I think that's an important distinction. I think your point about the pipelines, I think, is one that all health systems really should employ. And we've just started you know, to um if, put this in place at our main university center at Stanford, um, because you're right. Even if you're not routinely using on a daily basis, having a pipeline supply, central supply, um, is responsible for for low-level leakage that is contributing to this um, this, uh, climate catastrophe that we currently have ongoing. Um, That by itself, just switching to cylinders already, Changes that your mentality as a, an anesthetist, where you really have to think about um, whether or not it's appropriate to use for your patient, and you have to, you know, and you have to, you have to make that conscious decision to use it, um, because you're you're going to be using it off of a off of a tank. And I think I think that that's an important step. I mean, I think if um, if our health systems within the U. You S. Know, would um, go to tank nitrous, I think that 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 as a a uniform step, I think would make a huge difference in terms of the contribution of nitrous to the environment.
0: Yeah. And the, the conclusions that they uh, provide at the end actually aren't all that controversial. They they basically say um, it shouldn't be used routinely and it should be used on a case by case basis. And I think that's pretty fair.
1: And I think we can do better. You know, we we need to educate our patients about the options for analgesia. And, and I do think that that's something that we as an anesthesia community have not always been forward facing with the public as to all of the great advances that we offer. Um, But if you think about modern delivery, modern surgery, pain management, like none of these would exist today without all of the tremendous uh, advances and clinical innovations in pain management. We have way more to offer patients than than open mask nitrous oxide. And I think that um, as part of this, we need to make sure that yeah, the messaging isn't that we're taking something away, but we have all of these other great alternatives yeah, that can offer uh, pain relief, especially for our patients who are
0: concerned about pain. We're going to stay with the pain theme, uh, because next we have an interesting paper. It's a little bit different. Technically, it's a review. It's from the Prospect Group, and, and this is a, an international group of interested clinicians and experts. Um, it really is a great group, and they produced many papers that were published in, in the journal that that clinicians are able to go away and um, and use uh, in their own clinical practice, and the group is called PROSPECT. And PROSPECT is all about procedure-specific uh, pain relief for patients who are undergoing certain operations. So, for example, there was one for cesarean section and there was one for upper limb surgery. But this isn't about a particular procedure. This this is an updated review of their methods, and, and this is really timely because we have received from time to time some uh, letters of correspondence about some of the methods used by the PROSPECT group to come up with these recommendations. And I hope that this new paper that's been published, I hope people are able to read it and to see that this group have responded to some of those criticisms. Were you able to pick out anything that's new in the paper, Ed? I did. I, I
1: really appreciated uh, the this work from the authors. It's an international collaboration, as you mentioned, between anesthetists and surgeons. And I think um, in the past, as you can imagine, and PROSPECT is not unique to this, but in general uh, clinical practice guidelines um, have historically not always had the most robust of methodology. Um, I remember um, being told when I was very early in my career that uh, the guideline that uh, an article that I had read it was referred to as sandwich guidelines and when I was trying to understand what that meant um, that was it was explained to me that you get a bunch of people in a room with a plate full of sandwiches and then you you have discussion, and when the sandwiches are all gone, you have guidelines. <laughs>
0: so,
1: <laughs> and I think, and so the uh, so I think the evolution from um, sandwich guideline to truly, um, I think what we consider much more robust clinical practice guidelines that can help clinicians at the point of care in their decision making about patients. I think I think it's an ongoing process and. I think that this is—I think it's a great effort on their part to update their methodology you know, to provide um, you know, not the not the not perfection um, you know, as the end result, but really a progress towards you know, at least more robust and, and open description of how they come up with their recommendations, which I think is important because I think uh, in the end um, you know, we have to assume that you know, we as anesthetists and and for all clinicians that we're trying to be, do good by our patients and, uh, and it's helpful to have these summary documents that um, that aggregate evidence in a way that um, that helps us make those decisions and if there are uh, recommendations that are well evidenced and also have um, unanimous consensus from a group of experts then perhaps that's something that we may weight um, individually higher um, especially when trying to you know, to, to make difficult decisions on treatment, especially with pain management for patients having certain surgeries.
0: Yeah, and I think one of of the things that stood out for me was how they have made the way in which they bring together that evidence a lot more robust. Um, So they've moved away from the way in which they would grade recommendations and provide levels of evidence and, and eddie gave a great talk about level of evidence in, in edinburgh but they're actually moved towards um other systems so for example they use a tool from cochrane which is about risk of bias do you think that's a positive move are you seeing other, other groups doing Things similar to that, in order to come up with recommendations. I think there's been some
1: split, and I think, um, and you're right. The, it, I think the the choice of using the Cochrane uh, two risk of bias uh, tool, I think is, um, yeah, I think it's an appropriate response. I think to some of the criticisms that the prospect um, recommendations have gotten in the past. I think it, it helps in some ways to at least be transparent as to the way that they. Um, w- combine the the traditional uh, hierarchy of evidence, you know, the the pyramid of evidence that we are fairly familiar with, um, with their methodology, their Delphi methodology, and uh, the determination of consensus. Um, because um, I think that the way that they uh, structure their their guidelines and and their ongoing process um, is an assimilation of the two, and and I do think that uh, there is a place for that in clinical practice guidelines because. You know, one, you know, not not all not all questions you know, can be answered in you know, what we consider you know, the you know, the ideal uh, research format, um, and and because of that, I think that we all know in clinical practice you know, there are always gray areas, and and having um, you know, the you know, a group of experts, especially if it's international and multidisciplinary, um, yeah, you know, having that that real time discussion and coming to consensus is powerful, and I think that does add. Yeah, to you know, to our um, weighting yeah, of a particular recommendation, so I, I think that it's um, yeah, like I said, it's not perfection, but I think it's a move towards more robust methodology, and I and I really applaud them for that.
0: And no more. Looking for randomised control trials of, for example, paracetamol, non-steroidals, cops 2 inhibitors, etc., for specific operations. I think what they've said is that those things are, are quite generic, and and all patients should be having those for all procedures anyway. So I think they'll be looking more towards what type of blocks to use and um, and what other strategies to use for for patients rather than these very simple, you know, multimodal things which have become part of um, of everyday practice. In any case. Yeah, I think that's a good choice.
1: I mean, I, I, of course, yeah, we—you um, know—there are always situations in which you know, one of those uh, basic elements of non-opioid multimodal pain management may be contraindicated, but. Um, barring contraindications, I think that we would all agree that those are basic analgesics um, that in this era of uh, opioid stewardship that we should be offering to patients um, as part of their multimodal pain management plan.
0: Excellent. Well, let's move on to our last paper, Ed. Um, I really like this paper. I I like this paper that much that when I heard that it was about to be published, I jumped up and down until uh, the previous editor-in-chief, Andy Klein, agreed to let me write an editorial about it because I found it that interesting. This paper itself really fascinated me because it, it isolated this cohort of patients from the National Emergency Laprotomy Order in the UK who were predicted to be um, have an extremely high risk of mortality after laparotomy. And I'm talking not a high risk patient in the sense that we're told they've got a five or ten percent risk of mortality at, at however many days. These patients have been told that their risk of dying after surgery would be greater than 50%, for example. Some of them even had risk of 70, 80, 90% of dying, but these patients still received a a laparotomy and and, and actually um, a lot of these patients actually did die as predicted. So it's been very well received on social media. What did you pick out of it, Ed, and why do you think that other literature has has failed so far to, to really address this high risk? Uh, extremely high risk population group well I,
1: I agree I thought that this was a fascinating paper and and I applaud you for the editorial because I think that there, it's it's really a nuanced very nuanced area of surgical care and um, I think I mean I, I I've mentioned this before, but I always start with you know, we as, as physicians and and I would say this is true of everyone who uh, answers the call for a healthcare profession is that you you're trying to do good. You're trying to do good by your patients, and I, and I do think that yeah, you know, we as anesthetists work with surgeons every day, and uh, and I and I do believe that yeah, you know, they're trying to do good by do good by their patients as well, and sometimes um, yeah, you know, the yeah you know, the the burden of that um, of that vocation is sometimes very powerful. So you want to do everything you can you know, to try to help this patient, even if it's um, at times it you know, feels like um yeah it's it's a it's a completely last ditch effort um and and for context my dad is a general surgeon he is retired um but um i i grew up uh, with you know, during his you know, the main part of his practice it was in the 80s and 90s and um as a general surgeon you were a combination of surgeon and family doctor so yes even some of the uh, relationships that you had over time you know, would have been developed over decades um, so, you know, families, you know, you've done screening and when the screening tests come, become positive, um, then uh, then you're also the one you know, as the surgeon that, that does the, the biopsy and perhaps even eventually the corrective surgery. So um, uh, keeping that in mind, I think you know, what was really interesting, I think, in their audit was that um, not only was it fascinating how many patients with you know, greater than 80 percent chance of dying were operated on, but but also that 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 proportion was starting to shift. And the last few years it's been yeah. decreasing and uh, i think that that's a really interesting observation and and maybe sometimes the mentality and we see this in critical care as well um, that um, yeah you know, the, the the active choice you know, to pursue uh, palliative medicine um is a hard one you know, for patients and also for clinicians and their and their families um it feels like you're giving up um, but um but i think that shifting that that um, yeah, the that shifting that choice to more of an active decision, I think, is really critical, um, because uh, as you could tell, not only is the mortality extremely high, but you know what's difficult to capture, um, although the authors tried to, is that yeah the even if you don't die right away, the likelihood of going home is really unlikely, and we don't know what that um, post discharge life even looks like. So perhaps living and dying is just not an adequate metric you know, for patients you know, who, who are in these circumstances. the um, uh, Because just being alive is not living.
0: And I I found it great as well, um, when you look through the author list on that paper, and it's not just anaesthetists who are involved in, in the national emergency laparotomy order. I agree. And I hope then, and as a
1: As you mentioned, I really do hope that we have more of our colleagues and not not just anesthetists, but um, but all of our colleagues, surgeons and um, other clinicians who work with patients in critical care and surgery, perioperative medicine to consider sharing their work through through the journal, because I think this is really the way that we um, hopefully disseminate this information to um, to broader audience, yeah, you know, all of the people involved who can make care better and 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 do right by our patients that way.
0: Yeah, well, thank you very much for that, Ed. Um, we've been through three papers. There are there is much more to the issue than just that. So please do make sure that you have a look. I'm sure there'll be something there for everyone uh, this month. We have lots coming later this year uh, before Christmas, November. We're going to start seeing NAP seven papers. We've we've already had the uh, baseline survey paper and. Uh, the methods published, we're going to start seeing some some real results coming from that soon. Uh, so thanks, Ed. Um, I really hope you have a great day there in California. The day is coming to a, to a close here in Manchester. It's great that we're able to do this uh, online and and we're able to connect from other sides of the world. Next month uh, we'll be going through the December issue uh, with another editor. So thank you very much, Ed. Thank you so much, Mike. It was an absolute pleasure. Goodbye. The Anesthesia Podcast.